Have you ever attempted to force a toddler to sit in a chair? Can anyone show me what a toddler's body does in that situation? Just stand up in the pew and show me. What is, what is, what? <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking of, you know, this, right? I thought of my own memories of this when I came across God's sick burn against the Israelites, that they are a stiff-necked people, kind of like stiff-bodied toddlers. You can't make them do what they don't want to do. Of course, all of us humans are like the ancient Israelites. It's hard to get us to do anything outside our comfort zone. We have to want to do it. So the question is, how to make people want to do the thing you want them to do? The entire fields of marketing and propaganda are built on this. But the God who appeared to Moses in the wilderness apparently doesn't do much marketing or propaganda. God thought the covenant was pretty clear. Rescue the people from slavery, lead them into the wilderness, care for all their needs, and they'll want to be God's chosen people. Abraham's rightful descendants called out with a mission to show the world what God's love is really like. In today's reading from Exodus, though, God's plan isn't going very well. While Moses has been up on Mount Sinai consulting with God to iron out an official covenant, the rest of the people, led by Moses' brother Aaron and sister Miriam, have gotten restless and distracted. I mean, sure, 40 days is a long time for your leader to be away. There was no sabbatical specified in the contract. There hasn't been a contract at all. That's what Moses is supposed to be working out with God. But the people give up and tell Aaron, you know what, this being a chosen people thing, it's not really working out for us. Other nations have physical gods to pray to, so we want you to make us one. For some reason, Aaron complies. My favorite moment in this episode comes after our appointed reading for today, after Moses' angry return when he's raking Aaron over the coals, and Aaron insists, it's not my fault. They gave me their gold, I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. We all know that after, a couple years after the stiff-bodied toddler phase comes the phase of the bad liar. Well, this is the sort of thing that makes adults argue over who should be responsible for the mess, right? Your dog peed on the floor again. Your child colored all over the walls again. God shouts at Moses, your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have acted perversely. And Moses shouts back, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt? Who brought them out of the land of Egypt? God or Moses? Who exactly is responsible for saving this lost flock? But hang on. Let's take just a moment to wonder. What is God so upset about? Is it really that big a deal? Why can't God just let them be like other nations, with a physical manifestation of their supposed God to give them comfort? Is it any different from us having prayer beads or an icon or a big wooden cross? Why can't a golden calf stand as a symbol for God? Well, Episcopal author Madeline Lengel once described the difference between an icon and an idol. She said that if she 
holds an item while praying, like a cross, for instance, that item might actually help her focus her prayers on God. It may give her reassurance and comfort. But if she loses the cross, or if it's damaged or destroyed, has she lost God? Of course not. An idol is different. If you lose the idol, you fall prey to the illusion that you have lost God. If you lose all your money and thus believe that God has abandoned you, well, the money was an idol. If your church doesn't sing a certain hymn anymore and now it no longer feels like God is in church, well, maybe the hymn was an idol. God isn't going anywhere. But our perceptions and understanding of God must keep changing and expanding. At Mount Sinai, God gets upset with the people because they're so quick to give up. The people have been missing their leader for an annoyingly long time, so they assume that both their leader and their deity need to be replaced with something a little more conventional and reliable, maybe. Instead of seeking God in their new unnerving situation, they want to quit God and seek a more familiar situation. Even their priest, Aaron, has feet of clay. He goes right along with them. So you see, the people's offense against God is not that they've exchanged one deity for another. It's that they've exchanged their actual creator for something merely created. Did that calf bring them up out of Egypt? This is what God calls perverse and corrupt. Once you've decided that the fake is real... How can you ever be called back to reality? The golden calf seems realer because you can touch it physically, but the theological and metaphysical reality is the other way around. God is more real than any of the matter that God has created. We can apply this to all sorts of situations. Have you ever exchanged a long-term relationship for something shallow and temporary? Have you exchanged patient collaboration with others for doing it all yourself? Have you compromised your principles to take a job that does the world no good and maybe even harms people? How often do you do things you think you have to do because otherwise life will be more difficult and maybe because you've given up on higher hopes? All of this can be idol worship. But look what happens next. Moses reasons with God, and God changes the divine mind. Can this happen? Can a mere human convince God that God is doing it wrong? Maybe God is changeable, or maybe not. The early stories of Israel play with this and lots of other ideas about what God might be like, including the notion that maybe God is hot-headed, capricious, angry, and vengeful. But notice what happens at the end of today's story. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. His people. God's own people. After a bout of extreme frustration, God has undisowned the Israelites. It didn't take long. Parents, have you ever wanted to say to your child, we're done now? Not done with the argument, just done permanently. You may or may not have ever felt this way, but I guarantee that most of us who have been children have wondered whether our grown-ups 
would ever abandon us. This story from Exodus establishes that with God, there's no such thing as we're done now. We're never done. And God is never done with us. It doesn't matter what we say or do or how many times we get it wrong. And the news is even better than that. Even if God gets angry, God aches for us through the anger, longing for a better relationship. God finds creative new ways to reach us. God yearns to know us and to be known no matter what. And so we come to the gospel story of Jesus and Pharisees and tax collectors and sinners. Jesus goes out of his way to hang out with all the wrong people. And the right people, or the people who are absolutely certain about how right they are, notice and judge him harshly for it. So Jesus tells them a story. Let's say you have a hundred sheep and one goes missing. Obviously, you're going to do what any sensible shepherd would do. You'll leave 99 sheep unattended in a country full of wolves and go off on a wild goose chase for the one that's missing, right? Okay, I rephrased that. But think about it carefully. You've lost 1% of your sheep. The one is probably eaten or lying mortally wounded in a pit somewhere. Otherwise, it would have returned on its own, right? But I bet you wouldn't even consider just cutting your losses, leaving the sheep as a victim of Darwinian survival of the fittest and moving on. Or let's say you have 10 coins and you lose one. You'll tear the whole house apart looking for the coin, won't you? Won't you? Uh, I'm not sure. Is that literally all the money I have? Because I lose coins all the time and I don't typically miss them. And then when you find the sheep or when you find the coin, you celebrate, right? You invite over all the neighbors and throw a giant party, right? Um, well, the last time I lost my phone and then found it in the couch... It didn't even occur to me to throw a party, and my phone cost a lot more than one silver coin. For that matter, a huge party would also cost a lot more than one silver coin. <laughs> Our treatment of lost things has everything to do with the perceived value of those things. I don't care if I lose a coin, even though the coin can never find its own way back to me. I'm no farmer, but I'm terribly sad when a pet dies. I've lost a car to an accident, but then there was the insurance payment. I've lost lots and lots of things, haven't you? But how often have you turned your life upside down to find them again, instead of just replacing them with something new? Wow. Jesus tells us that God doesn't act like a smart business owner saving as many as possible with scarce available resources, there is no scarcity. We're irreplaceable. Each and every blessed one of us. There is only one you. And God's not done with you. Not ever. You are always worth throwing a party over. Jesus follows these two stories with the parable of the prodigal son. We hear that story not in this season, but during Lent. Still, go home and pick up where we left off today. 
at Luke 15, 11. God has no interest in destroying you. Quite the contrary, God will make jealous the ones who scorned you and who always assumed they were in the right. I received mercy, we hear Paul say, because I had acted ignorantly in my unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Amen.